the smell of rotting bodies was so strong and so bad that I literally started gagging. Now tuned in to my good fiends at Talks from the Crypt, the most gruesome podcast in the world. <laughs> All right, and then while I test microphones, I'm going to ask the dumbest question I possibly can. Uh, what's the scariest horror movie you've ever seen and why? Wow, the scariest horror movie I've ever seen? I don't scare in horror movies, right? Mm-hmm. I don't scare in horror movies. Should we move it for closer to me? Yeah. Okay. All right, like that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, I don't scare. I don't scare in horror movies. Um, so we'll, we'll shift that over a genre, and we'll say the scariest movie I ever saw was Jaws. Jaws? Yeah, because when you're an OC kid and you're growing up, going to the beach every day, suddenly when there's a giant shark in the water and then some asshole kid inevitably going, dum dum when you're out in the water, <laughs> yeah. that's scary shit. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. So, Rick, before we get into Midsummer Scream, what would you say the origins of, of the SoCal horror slash Halloween community comes from? Well, I think if we're going to go way back to to the, the Big Bang, if it were, it's got to be Hollywood, right? It's Hollywood, and it's the birth of the classic Universal monsters. That's really where the genre starts, right? And so then you have, throughout the 70s and then going into the 80s, the different waves of the rebirth of the horror genre in Hollywood. And so the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. So suddenly you have these folks that are really into making these movies and doing the makeup and all this. Suddenly they're going home at night and definitely during Halloween, that stuff manifests itself for the trick-or-treaters. So it kind of all snowballed. And that's why it's such a, a huge um, community in Southern California, unlike anywhere else really. Yeah. And that's an interesting take too, because Los Angeles being where they make the movies. I feel like even the locals embrace entertainment. So while that's actually something that Vegas in Los Angeles has in common is we embrace the entertainment industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that in a lot of ways, it's safe to say that without the entertainment aspect, neither cities would be quite as successful, you know, as they are. Or, or you know, the legacy is obviously Southern California offers everything from agriculture to fantastic coastlines and and you know fishing and 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 but yeah hollywood i mean everybody knows la was like the entertainment capital right mm-hmm. like everybody would go there it was either southern california or new york right yeah. that's where all the action was and so uh you know I, and vegas of course in the same way without the entertainment and of course gambling which is entertainment you know without all that this beautiful little city wouldn't exist yeah. so no, they are, I think, tied at the hip that way. Right. It's crazy to think that, like, you know, because you see 1931's Dracula and, and Frankenstein, and you've just become so used to the setting of the movie yeah. that you forget that it was literally shot on the Universal backlot. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, that's the magic of, well, we'll say movies, but also then beyond that, tying into everything that we're talking about, you know, themed entertainment. And, yeah. and themed entertainment, part of the themed entertainment industry is, of course, the haunts and Halloween events. So, yeah. 
So let's let's rewind but before yeah. the themed entertainments and when you got into it. Yeah. So where where did the fear fascination start? I was that little kid that uh, was never afraid of of anything. Like I, I somewhere along the line, it just clicked to me that oh okay, well the scary people on the screens those are those are actors and that's movie makeup. And then when I was a little bit older and started going to haunted houses or whatever, and they weren't anywhere as prevalent as they are now, you know, in the, in the early seventies, um, it just never, it never occurred to me. Oh my God, these are monsters. It was always, I, I mean, I just always knew these are, you know, actors and this is a haunted house. And so I, you know, I don't know, I don't know where it came from because my grandparents who I, I mostly grew up with my grandparents, they weren't, you know, they weren't haunt fans. They weren't into horror stuff. Um, now, God bless them. They let me watch like Halloween when it came on HBO. That's how I first saw the original Halloween was on HBO. And uh, no, they were cool. They let me do that. They let me stay up till, you know, midnight or whenever the debut of, of Thriller, you know, Michael mm -hmm. Jackson's Thriller came on MTV. That was a big deal when that released. Um, and I just loved all that. And it was never like a taboo thing. It was always encouraged and then my my grandmother she we would always i mean i had i had some years where we did the store-bought you know costumes the, the plastic you know and the horrible you know one one you know one size fits all plastic sheet but i mean um my grandmother really as i got a little bit older like really we would go to goodwill and raid all the you know i was dracula I was uh, Sheriff Buford T. Justice from, from Smokey and the Bandit one year. Uh, I was Indiana Jones, you know, one year. And uh, these were all piecemeal costumes that we put together. So I was never afraid of it. I mean, I guess the first, uh, you know, so Fangoria came out when I was in my, I don't know, I was probably like 11 when I guess Fangoria came out or whatever. Um, at the time, well, fast forward just a little bit. I was I was growing up in Irvine with my mom, and uh, we went into uh, you know a, a drugstore to get something, and there was Fangoria on, on this uh, you know on the on the rack, and it was the one that had zombie on on the cover of it, and I was like, what is this? What is this magic? You know, and my mom wouldn't buy it for me. No, I'm not gonna buy that, and I like lost my shit. I was like, no, this is. This is speaking to me, you know, and I bugged her so much that she went back. She goes, okay, okay, okay. Next time we go, we'll get it. So we went back like that weekend or whatever, and it was gone. God damn it. It was gone. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we got, uh, we got the subscription then to Fangoria. And uh, so, no, I mean, I, ever since I was a little kid, I was just like super into it. So, I, I, but I don't know where that comes from because the family was not, not into it. Mm -hmm. So. I don't know. I got dropped off the bassinet a couple times. That probably did it. <laughs> well, Halloween's like the gateway drug to, to horror movies, you know? Yeah. Were, were you into Halloween particularly as a kid? Oh, yeah. And and, and I had a weird... Uh, so when I was a little kid, I had a lot of... Sorry, I'm not going to the bathroom. I'm pouring I'm pouring water. Okay. <laughs> no problem. Um, it's video, too. So there we go. It. Yeah, I'm pouring water. <laughs> so when I was a little kid, um, my grandfather would take me trick-or-treating. And my, my first, the first place I grew up was in Rialto, California. And um, there was like one house on every block that had the lights turned out and the, the scratchy, spooky record playing and maybe a red party bulb, you know, in the front porch light. Mm -hmm. And I, like a moth to the flame, like that's the house that I wanted to go to. You know, other kids were like, I don't want to go. 
I was like, dude, that's it. That's that's the only house I want to go see. And there were some really fantastic houses on mm-hmm. the street. Now, was this in the 70s, 80s? Yeah, this would have been in the early 70s. So Southern California has been doing this for a long time, these yeah. home haunts. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's not really any documentation of who the first was. But, you know, we can trace a lot of the early home haunts back to the early 70s, you know. Could you say that you could trace back the popularity of haunted theme park attractions to Southern California as well? Yeah, Knott's Berry Farm started it in 1973. And you went there, right? So I grew up going to Knott's. I didn't I didn't go to Knott's Scary Farm. Back then it was called Halloween Haunt. Um, I didn't go to Haunt until I was probably 11 or so. It was about, it was the early 80s. And we went with a church group from from Irvine that I was part of. And so I always tell people the best thing I ever learned in church was about not scary farm. Yeah. So we we signed the waivers, tell your parents we're gonna go, and we all piled into the church van and we showed up in Buena Park and we got out and all the fog was flowing up over the fence and spilling out over La Palma. And we we're like, what is this? You could hear people screaming. And so then we went in and that, you know, unfortunately that, that whole night is a blur, but I just remember coming away going, oh my God, I've been to Mecca. This is it. Like I was probably 11 or 12, maybe 13 at the most. I don't know. But uh, finding a whole theme park filled with, with mazes and roaming monsters in ghost town and just, holy shit, it was like the best thing ever, you know? So that's, that's, I mean, and that's the genesis. Knott's is the great I am of, of the, the haunt experiences in the theme parks. And it just kind of grew from there, and now it's a worldwide thing. Was it just the fact that it was a whole theme park filled with haunted attractions, or did they do anything specific that set them aside from maybe Universal? Well, yes and yes. I mean, Universal didn't get into that game for decades later. Like, oh, not, really? Not many people did. And that's why Knott's has such a big leg up than anybody else. I mean, this is year 49 for Knott's. And so, uh, you know, um, yeah, I mean, they, they started by creating the theme park event. I mean, really, it was Ghost Town at that point. Most of it was in Ghost Town. Um, but Roaming Monsters. Uh, and then the genesis that also occurred there was sliding. And anybody that's been to a haunt literally anywhere in the world, you've seen slider monsters. That all originated. That can be traced right back to the, the, the streets of, of Calico in Ghost Town. Knott's, you know, I just, I always just lovingly refer to it as like you go to Knott's and it's like going to a, a, you know, garage haunt, like, like, especially during the eighties, like eighties going into the early nineties, Knott's really started going to town with making just big funky props. And they just did everything like in-house, right? You go to other haunts and, you know, there are things like Transworld now where people go and they spend tens of thousands of dollars on, you know, in, you know, buying their, their catalog of what they're going to have in their haunts, and it all gets delivered, whereas Knott's created everything, you know, in-house. It resulted in things not looking so polished, but that's what gave it its cool charm, right? It was like mm-hmm. a one-of-a-kind. If you had a need for a gigantic spider or a giant jack-o'-lantern, they just made it, Yeah, you know? And even if it looked kind of shitty or whatever, it didn't matter because it was it, it belonged to Haunt. It belonged there. It lived there, you yeah. know? And became part of the the legend and the lore of, of Scary Farm. Um, so I think the precedent that they set was just, you know, taking this garage style haunt and just like blowing it up and creating their own IPs. I mean, Knotts has had some IP, uh, you know, stuff over the years, but that's not their forte. And they've always been the haunt. Like you go to Universal to see 
Blumhouse and, and Halloween and Texas Chainsaw and all this stuff, right? You go to Knott's to see the original mazes like Dominion of the Dead or Origins or, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what differentiates the two. And I said, I guess that's the legacy of, of Scary Farm. The, the precedent that they set was just they make their own IPs mm-hmm. and the fans go nuts for it. The people were in love with it. Their sets are incredible, too. Yeah. Well, know. they've gotten better. I mean, it really, you know, it, that... It was kind of janky, you know, in the 70s going into the early 80s. But mid-80s going into the 90s, things really started to impre- become more impressive. And now, I mean, the, the class, you know, they're world class, the mazes that are designed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they've, they've come a long way. Was independent haunts a thing or did not kind of start that as well? Well, there were independent haunts, but it wasn't like today where you're, you know, here in Vegas, you go out and you can go to Freakling Brothers or, you know, Once Upon a Time, the Fright Dome, you mm-hmm. know, whatever. Um, back in the 70s, it was like the JCs, you know, or, or church groups would, ha- would you know, for a fundraiser. Mm-hmm. And they, they weren't all over the place, right? So um, ironically, like the earliest haunt memory that I have that I went to, to an independent haunt was in a now shuttered mall in San Bernardino. It was called the Central City Mall. And... Um, I just remembered it was in a small black trailer and it was just self-contained. It was sitting in like the atrium of this mall and I went nuts and I said to my grandfather, I must do this thing, you know, and, and I did, and I don't remember really anything uh, within it. Uh, But the funny thing is years later, people uh, asked me, you know, what my earliest haunt memory was. And I wrote about that and, and it was online. And this guy reached out to me and said, that was my haunt. I did that when I was 15 years old. And that guy turned out to be Garner Holt, who is the world's greatest audio animatronic, you know, developer and, and, and builder. And they also build scenic and everything. They're out of Redlands, California. But uh, that was Garner. As a teenager, he started in all this by making his own haunts. So it was just great that my first memory of a haunt was this guy who's now become a friend. And he's a major player in the themed entertainment industry worldwide. Uh, just kind of funny how that all gelled together like yeah. that. Yeah. And do you feel over time the general public has become less festive with the holiday of Halloween, or do you feel it's kind of the same and getting better? Oh, no, it's getting better. I mean, worldwide, it's like a $12 billion industry. Mm-hmm. So that is, it's only second to Christmas. And so that's huge growth, huge growth. And, you know, when I'm not doing Midsummer or whatever, I, I design attractions. I work in the themed entertainment industry as as a creative director and uh, lots of, of clients from around the world, a lot in Asia, where Halloween is not a thing because they process horror very differently than, than we do here and, uh, and in the UK. And so Asia is really getting on board with, with Halloween and horror and spooky stuff, you know. Um, so, no, it's absolutely globally growing and, and getting bigger and stronger every year. Coming from Vegas, it's, it's hard to see that because there mm. is no Halloween community here. And much like a lot of the listeners, I feel like... Not yet. Yeah, not yet. We'll talk about that, but not yet. Yeah. yeah. And that poses the question of like, how do we push that agenda a little bit further? How do we get other communities in different cities and different towns um, around the world to really embrace that creepy side and lean into it? Well, you know, I, I think that it goes back to there are horror fans everywhere, right? And there are fans of spooky things everywhere, right? So even if you go into, you know, rural America, there's, there's going to be a certain amount of your population um, 
especially now with social media and, and the internet and, 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 you know, streaming on demand, everything is like so inter, interwoven and everything's at your fingertips, right? Um, you, you realize very quickly, no matter where you are, oh, there's other kids that like scary stuff too, you know? And so, you know, when I was, I got a lot of shit when I grew up, like in, in junior high, um, there was a whole section of, of, of the student body there that, that gave me shit because I was, I was the creepy kid that liked the spooky stuff or whatever. Right. And really didn't listen to music. I listened to movie soundtracks. Right. And a lot of it was horror soundtracks that I listened to. So I got a lot of shit from other kids. Now that's cool. Right. The, the, the kid that grows up in high school being a fan of Michael Myers or wearing a misfit shirt or, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's an know, aesthetic. That's a cool, you're a goth kid. You're a cool kid. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, it's become a cool thing. Um, and, and I think that just going hand in hand with that, when you go into a community such as Las Vegas, there are obviously people here that are really into it, but there's no, there's no glue connect. There's no connective tissue, mm -hmm. you know, yet putting all that stuff together. And it just takes a little nudge and maybe um, a, a hub to facilitate that where people can come together and, and, and gather. And then you realize as we'll get into with Midsummer Scream, it becomes the island of misfit toys. And suddenly the people that have been outcast all their lives are been made to feel a little weird because they have only black shirts or only black dresses and the family gives them shits. Why don't you have why don't you have pink dresses? Why don't you have nice yellow dresses? Mm -hmm. You know? Why don't you cut your hair? Suddenly all those kids, they are with their people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And you know the I think that once you understand that there are people just like you just outside your door, then everything starts to snowball and to gel together. Yeah. So did you plan, you know, from when you went through your first haunted house, you were like, this is what I'm getting into. Halloween and horror is my thing is what I'm doing. Or did it uh, evolve over time? I wanted to be a train engineer. <laughs> so no, it had nothing to do with what I went through. I, I never walked through it and went, oh, no. I'm going to do this. No, for me, it was like conjunction junction all the time. Yeah. I, I wanted for a long time to be a train engineer. Um, so, uh, no, um, you know, over the years, I, I did dabble with helping people with their haunts. Um, I, I've created a couple haunts over the years. Uh, I helped develop. Uh, there's a, for the past many years, a couple decades, actually, there's been a huge home haunt in Orange County called Boot Hill, and I helped create that with the team that now does that. They, they've taken a couple years off, but hopefully they come back next year. Um, but no, that, that, that all just kind of happened by accident. And then about 12 years ago, now I guess it is, I got into themed entertainment. And through well, it dates back yeah. further than that, right? Because you were a Disney cast member at some point. Well, I did. I were in the late eighties. I worked at the Haunted Mansion, but even then, it wasn't like, oh, I'm this is it. I'm going to create a Haunted Mansion. Yeah. No, I just, but there I, was that preface for. I worked, well, sure. I mean, I growing up in Southern California, I went to the theme parks all the time. My grandfather took me all the time since I was two to all the parks here, and Disneyland, of course, being one of them. And I grew up a huge Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion fan. Uh, again, as a very little kid, never afraid of the darkness, never afraid of going down the waterfall and pirates, never freaked out that there was a ghost sitting in the doom buggy with me. I loved it. I loved it all. And yet in the late 80s, I became a cast member and I worked Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean and I fell in love with it. I mean, I just I went nuts about it. And that is when I decided that I wanted to become. Well, back then you figured 
if you're going to be a ride designer, you've got to be an Imagineer. That's it. Have you heard, ever heard of the Disneyland urban legends? You know, Walt. Oh, yeah, of course. There. Any truth to any of those? No. What's in here? Oh, you don't need to see that. Damn. No, I think the the whole Walt Frozen, the cryogenic thing came from, there was an article that somebody wrote either in the 60s or 70s about cryogenics. And I believe the person said, it seems to me like if anybody would be interested in preserving themselves for, you know, for like this, it would be someone like Walt Disney. And I believe that's where that whole urban legend came from. And then the idea yeah. was born. Yeah, see. You always hear about those ones where it's like a cast member was killed behind a revolving wall america screams america sings yeah. yeah yeah that happens every every attraction has its horror stories because at the end of the day when you take the pixie dust away they're just big machines yeah and humans are stupid animals and yeah. so you know you you mix those two and you're going to have accidents and there's certainly there are accidents anywhere there's an attraction there's an accident yeah. So, so theme park adventures came from working at Disney, right? That was a publication you were. Yeah. For. So I did, I did theme park adventure for 24 years. Um, what happened was when I was a cast member at Disneyland, I started writing uh, guest articles for Disney fanzines at the time. And people really loved the way that I wrote about the cast member experience. And it just occurred to me that I love Everything from Las Vegas to zoos to roller coasters and not just Disneyland stuff, right? And so I just kind of expanded that and I created TPA. This was before the internet. This was in 1994. And uh, there wasn't, there was, there, there was maybe a handful of, of publications out there at the time, less than five that I, that I know of. Uh, that were dedicated print material for, for theme park fans. And uh, I was certainly one of the first. And then I was definitely the first online when, when the information superhighway opened. Uh, I was the first online that was, because there were Disney BBSs and things like that. I was the first for all themed entertainment. And that just kind of grew o over the years. And so, yeah. And then my love of all the Halloween stuff and all the haunt stuff, that played a big role. In, in TPA's evolution, you were like the OG vlogger, but it, but right, but it, 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 it yes, it, it, it made it possible for me to blaze a lot of trails. I was absolutely the first person ever that went through not scary farm and filmed the mazes. Mm -hmm. I've heard in the past that y you were saying that they were questioning the legitimacy behind that, like who would want to yeah, see any well, of this. Well, it was it was a meeting I had one year in their marketing uh, office, and I said, "Would you guys mind if I?" took and posted pictures of your the build process of your mazes that are being built. And they were just completely like, who would care mm. about, about construction process? And now, a couple decades later, you can't imagine a haunt anywhere not sharing their yeah. build process. Now everyone online, cares. of course. <laughs> yeah. So no, I, I was I was there for that. Uh, I coordinated with them every year to walk through and and shoot the videos, the flow throughs of the mazes. For a long time, TPA was the only one that was allowed to do that mm -hmm. uh, at, at Knott's. So I'm very proud of that. Uh, if I had come along today, there's a million people out there that do it better than, than, than I could. They have, the toys are better. Hell, I can go through with, when we go to haunts, I go through with my iPhone. And it takes much better pictures than any expensive camera that I ever, you know, bought. Mm -hmm. You know, so, I mean, no, I, I was at the right place at the right time. I was a fan that decided... I want to just take this a little little bit further 
than, than the other fans. And uh, it just kind of happened. Um, but I just, I, I literally, until about 12, 13 years ago now, whatever it's been, uh, I just did whatever jobs that kind of paid the bills and just kind of let me do TPA or anything that I was into, right? And so it was literally a, a phone call over that changed my life overnight. You know, um, I responded to something on Craigslist about looking for a, a show writer for an attractions company. And I just kind of flippantly, you know, filled it out and said, here's my resume, here's some samples and went to bed. Mm -hmm. And the next day I got the phone call from a guy that I knew because he was a fan of TPA uh, and said, hey, we're really looking for somebody. Are you looking for a job? And my joke has always been, yeah, I'm looking for a sharp object to open a vein here because I'm so sick of this job. And literally overnight, actually it was like three nights, it was about 72 hours, my entire life changed. And I suddenly was thrown into creating theme parks and attractions. And when was this? That would have been, well, whatever 12 or 13 years is now. My mind is kind of, everybody's mind is scrambled because we've gone through this pandemic wormhole, right? Where like the, you say, oh, like last year, oh wait, no, that was 2018, you know. Um, but it's been about 12 years. It lasted a year and a half, but sometimes it feels like it was like three, four years. Yeah, well, it's in many ways, it's still ongoing because of all the dev you know, devastation in its wake. And now, do you feel like the pandemic has impacted the Halloween slash horror community negatively or positively? Yes, <laughs> both. Um, yeah, no, both. Uh, um, obviously, it brought everybody that does events to their knees because everything on a global scale came to a screeching halt. At the same time, it caused people to, this is one of my buzzwords, I hate the word. You've used it already, pivot. Because <laughs> we've heard pivot so much the past year and a half, two years. Um, but it did, it, it caused people to pivot and, and really brought out like so many, so many years um, of doing home haunts. These guys couldn't do this even at home anymore. So we saw a lot of drive up experiences, right? Um, and I say, we, I'm gesturing towards my girlfriend over here. And uh, we found a lot of, of drive through experiences. And uh, it forced haunters to really kind of buckle down and figure out, okay, what, what can we do? What, how else can we expand? And uh, they did it, some better than others, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and, you know, as great as some of them were, if I never have to do another drive-up experience, I'm happy with it. I'm fine with yeah. that. Nothing like going through a haunt in your own car where you're completely at home. And part of going through a haunt is that you feel vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not vulnerable in my car, all reclined with the AC on or, you know, whatever. So uh, don't miss those, those moments or those days of the pandemic. But uh, yeah, I mean, it forced, it forced creativity, right? Well, and horror is one of those things where it's like the scarier times get, usually the better the movies get. I mean, you look historically, the Great Depression in the 30s was you know, almost timed up perfectly with the great boom of universal yeah. monsters as well. Yeah. So that's why I think movies uh, are slowly but surely getting better. But I just got back from a trip in L.A. And I have nothing negative to say about Horror Nights or Knots. I mean, obviously, they are still the best. But you could tell, like, budgets getting cut down and, and uh, you know, they're, it feels like they're not trying as hard as they did four or five years ago. I think a lot of it is financial, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that you and I can sit here and say, well, if I owned a theme park, I'd throw twice the budget at it to make <laughs> yeah. it bigger and better than it's ever been. But these parent companies are going, well, shit, we lost so many millions of dollars mm -hmm. not operating. 
we're not going to give you, you know, $2 million per maze, you know, to build. They're going to say, okay, we're going to slowly start. The artery is open now, so we're going to slowly start tapping blood into it. But you guys really have to, like, get scrappy and, and put it together so we can we have to justify to our shareholders and we have to justify to everybody. But where are the independent haunters getting it right where they could keep budget low and still like reign of terror is one of the best walkthrough sets. Sure. We were just there. We just did reign of terror. It's very knots like, right? You know, you got the walls and you know, the sets are really elaborate. Yeah. I mean, Bruce and his crew, they do something really special with reign of terror. So reign of terror, if, if you don't know, and you're watching reign of terror is an amazing haunt in thousand Oaks, California. It's been there for, for years. He started as a home haunter, actually, and it's in a permanent location now at the Jans Marketplace in Thousand Oaks, and he opens it up once in a while throughout the year. He is one of the only ones that I can think of in, in, in Southern California that is blessed with a space where he gets to keep it up year-round. Yeah. Like, I think it's at like an old, old Navy, right? I mean, he's moved it once. Uh, he had a big move just like in the last couple of years mm. where he moved locations, um, and but he gets to keep it up year round, which is a luxury that most haunters, because the rent is so outrageous in Southern California, nobody can really afford to keep it up like a year. You know, rent. They do. Seventeenth Door does also. They leave their haunt up, um, and they get to monkey with it then throughout the year. But that is such a rarity across the United States and around the world. Not so much. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested, out of everything you've seen, I mean, you live in the hot spot of, yeah. of haunted attractions in California. Out of everything, what, what has to be your favorite? The best haunted attraction that we've ever seen is 13th Gate in Baton Rouge. Oh. Which you are about to experience. Yes, I am. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for years I had people, including John Cook, telling me, dude, you have to go see this thing. And so... Elianova and I, we we went and we saw this thing years ago, and holy shit, just like what they have done there, it's about an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes outside of New Orleans uh, in Baton Rouge, mind-blowing, like it takes forever to walk through, like what, 30 minutes, it felt 30, 40 minutes to go through everything, um, their, their scenic, their sense of scenic design is is like you're on a movie set. So you have you have the 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 realism but even beyond what like Universal does in their mazes, right? You have the actors that interact with you even more than like at not scary farm in the mazes, right? Mm-hmm. Um you have scents that they incorporate into different rooms. You know, I understand scents are used, you know, you you go through and you're in a dirty bathroom and it smells like old piss. And so, you know, whatever, right. Or the, the kind of sort of smells like poo, you know, they, they have the shit scent. And I'm like, I've never smelled shit like that. You want to smell shit, go into a Vegas bathroom, you know, in the casino, (laughs) you'll you'll get your shit. Yeah. You go to your circus. Sorry, circus circus. But uh, you know, um, so it's always that weird synthetic shit smell, but uh, no, we went in like, like one of the earlier, the first you go into like the black plague in, in, in 13th gate, the smell of rotting bodies was so strong and so bad that I literally started gagging, like retching, even though my mind is going, it's a scent. The way that it was staged with the piled bodies and the, you know, sound of flies or just whatever. It was so gnarly that I was literally like, this Mm -hmm. is bad. This is gross. Right. Um, and the scale. So that, 
the scale. You'll go through something like a Horror Nights maze, and typically it goes up to about eight feet is where the scenic is, right? You go into some of these haunts that are outside of California, including 13th Gate in Baton Rouge, um, you're talking 20, 20 plus feet tall for some of the rooms that you're in and some of the scenes, right? And so, no, I mean, that that just checks all the boxes. The actors are great. The scenic is great. The soundscape is great. The lighting is phenomenal. Plus the fact that this is up year round, so they change things around all the time. Um, mind-blowing, mind-blowing. Like we walked out of it going, what the fuck was that? That was like, that just, it hits like a train. You're just like, what, what did I just experience? Mm -hmm. You know, and then the, the second thought is, oh, can I please go back and see that again? And then the third thought is, God damn it, they don't allow pictures or video, even if you're media, you know, or whatever. So, uh, no, but, it, so, yeah, so as far, but, here comes the but. That doesn't make it my favorite. Yeah, it's hard to it choose. It doesn't a make favorite. it my favorite. It's like asking what's your Technically, favorite. Technically, that movie. is the best I've ever seen, right? Yeah, but no, there are mazes that are have been favorites of mine over the years. Dominion of the Dead, the original Dominion of the Dead at Knott's Berry Farm. You know, uh, the original Trick or Treat at Knott's. Um, Origins is beautiful. Waxworks, which this is the last year for Waxworks. Waxworks is beautiful. Pumpkin Eater. I mean, no, Pumpkin Eater is the last year for, for Pumpkin Eater. Is it really? Yeah. That's the best. I think and I that's love my it. favorite we, one. And we love Waxworks, too. Waxworks is staying for a little bit. But, I mean, um, all of those, right? Like, But over the years, yeah, you have your favorites. But, no, nothing has ever stood, stood out as my favorite. Mm -hmm. Like, there are favorite home haunts that we yeah. go to every year. Rotten Apple is a favorite home haunt in Burbank, right? Um no, but I don't have like a favorite. Yeah. I'm just trying to think, you know, what what could you know, from my personal perspective over, you know, I've been going to haunts since I was as long as I could remember. Um and specifically within the last 5 to 6 years, I've noticed uh it's starting to become a little too formulaic. Like, you know, I I could walk into a room and be like that window drops down, someone's going to pop out. This person's about to do this. What can modern day haunts learn from Thirteenth Gate and Baton Rouge? You know what 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 could these people apply to theirs to make it not only scarier but just a better experience, something that's more memorable? Every haunt, I think, you have to have the best scenic that you can. Uh, huge props to Universal Hollywood this year. This is the first year that I can remember where 90% of the black hallways and black walls were gone, which was, that was like my favorite part of, of Horror Nights this year, the fact that they got rid of about 90% of the black walls. I thought that was great. Um, your scenic has to be great. I think that your, um, your actors have to be on point. You know, you, you have to have, your actors have to be on point because if, they, if they're flatlined, they're, the, you can have the most bitch and haunt in the world. But with shitty talent or no talent, you're, you're fighting an uphill battle all the way. And something that I think haunters everywhere uh, can miss on, you have to have soundscape. Doesn't mean that you have to have somebody write you a score for your, for your haunt, but you cannot send guests into a haunted attraction and have it be quiet. Right. 
Imagine Halloween or Jaws without its soundtrack. Imagine yeah. Star Wars without John Williams' soundtrack. Imagine Jurassic Park without the Jurassic Park theme. Imagine Indiana Jones without the Raiders march. <laughs> yep. You have to have scenic in yeah. any themed experience. I, I think that if you create an event that has lots of there there and, and it comes from the heart, it's got to be from the heart. It's got to be from the heart. I mean, there's no secret sauce in what we do with Midsummer Scream. We simply create the show that we as fans would want to go see. Well, and what's interesting about Midsummer Scream, too, is that, you know, typically you see one or the other. It's either a horror convention like Days yeah. of the Dead or it's yeah. a Halloween slash haunt convention like Transworld. You guys put them both in one. Yeah. Where do you think the marriage between Halloween and horror is? You know, where do you think those two things overlap with each other? And how does it yeah. work so well with Midsummer Scream? Man, it's like peanut butter and chocolate, right? It's it's <laughs> it's it's the Reese's of, of, of genres. But no, I mean, it, it's... It's so parallel, just like people that are really into Dia de los Muertos love, love, love. Dia de los Muertos has nothing to do with Halloween. But you have the skeletons and you have the pageantry and suddenly it's all kind of lumped in. And Southern California and Southern Nevada have the big Hispanic populations. And suddenly it becomes part of the same bubbling cauldron of fun. Right. Mm -hmm. um, same thing, you know, in, in, in 2019, we introduced. Uh, Tiki, the Hall of Shadows in Midsummer Scream was Tiki Terror. And it took me a little a little nudging on our team. I said, they're like, we don't quite see the connection. I said, trust me, there are horror fans that really are into the Tiki culture because it's all being part. Tiki is kind of this like, like spooky, like subculture. Yeah, there's a lot of not spooky elements to it, but there's a lot of like, the, the weird, like the voodoo and ass, you know, the, it's like the, the Brady Bunch movie, the spooky. Yeah, man. The, the, the spider, the spider amulet, right? Well, then they, but, oh, I thought it was actually like a tiki head, wasn't it? Oh, tiki head. But that, the spider was in the hotel room. Oh, okay. That's right. But uh, there is crossover there just the same way as there's crossover with Halloween and horror and theme park fans. Like we have a huge contingent of Disney fans that come to Midsummer Scream, which is really one of the main reasons that one of the only two icebergs that we we, we steer our Titanic show from uh, are D23 and Comic-Con. We, we do the best we can to avoid those two icebergs because we don't want to collide because we never want our fans to have to choose because that sucks. And then at the same time, we have about, you know, 300 media folks that come out to Midsummer Scream they're suddenly going to be choosing also. So we do try to avoid that. For me, it's about the fans, right? You're doing your fan community a disservice if you deliberately set your event against another big event where they're going to be torn. And there are people that would argue, well, then we just find out who really supports us or who would rather go to D23. And I'm like, no, if you can, if you can make it so you don't clash ever with those, that's the ideal because you don't want to ask your fans. You don't want to ask your community to make a decision, to make a choice because mm -hmm. that sucks all the way around and yeah. everybody loses when it comes to that. Yeah. So there is, so back to what we were saying, there is a crossover between horror and Halloween. I think because it's already so intertwined anyway. I mean, John Carpenter's Halloween is about Halloween, but it's a horror movie, right? So mm -hmm. it kind of already was always there, yeah. right? Um, 
how the Universal Monsters became part of Halloween. It's because somebody said, hey, we're going to make costumes for kids that are the mummy and the wolfman and Frankenstein's monster and blah, blah, blah. And so it's always been there, right? So uh, that, to me, that's just, it, it goes hand in hand. And you create an event, like you mentioned Transworld. Transworld is a trade show. It's not a convention, right? A convention is a celebration of fans, right? A trade show is where you go. Transworld is where you go at the beginning of the year. You take a blank checkbook and you write tens of thousands of dollars of orders because you're ordering all your animatronics and all your props and all your whatever, your lighting effects, whatever, for your haunted attraction. Then they ship it to you. You build your haunted. Transworld has nothing to do with celebrating Halloween mm. or horror. Right. It's a trade show. Yeah. Um, you know, it's actually called Transworld Trade it's Show. It's a trade show. It's yeah. not a convention. Yeah. So apples and oranges again. We are a convention. Our, sure, we will have immortal masks. They will come because they're friends of ours and they will have a great booth or whatever. Or we will have these companies like 13th Floor come and set up a big you know, floor display on our show floor. But the number one target, what we're looking at is what the guests are really going to love mm -hmm. because that's who we're servicing. What are some of those things? What are some of the boxes you, you as Rick West yeah. has to check for the audience that comes? Well, it's got to be cool and it's got to be fresh and it's got to be fun. It's got to be something that I would be interested in seeing. My biggest, my biggest sandbox within the overall sandbox of Midsummer is Hall of Shadows which is a huge space. If you don't know what Hall of Shadows is, it's a, it's a huge space in the Long Beach Convention Center. It's about 100,000 square feet. We turn off all the lights and we have haunters from all over Southern California and beyond come and build displays and many haunted attractions that people actually walk through. And so it's basically like having a, like a not scary farm within you know our, our haunt convention where we also have over 300 vendors that we handpick we have live entertainment. We've got multiple stages with things going on. We have a, a main stage that seats about 2,000 people where we have world-class presentations from everybody. Like this last year, we did, uh, you know, the, the original Monster Kids. We had, you know, Sarah Karloff, and then we had the Cheneys and, and the Lugosis, and it was hosted by Kirk Hammett from Metallica. Uh, we have world-class presentations like that. The theme parks come out. Horror Nights, John Murdy comes out, talks about what they're going to do this year to the smaller stages that have, you know, discussions from horror writers about how to create horror novels and get them published in the industry or whatever. So we just cater to like every aspect uh, that we can, but always keeping in our mind that it really is a fan show first. And we try different things. Some things work, some things don't work. This year we had a lot more celebrities than we've ever had. And it was an experiment because for years we've always said, and we've gone out of our way to say, we're not an autograph show. We are not a celebrity show, but there is a certain part of the population that does want to come and get that actor's signature right. on something. Yeah. And so we tried that and we've, we've learned from it this year. And we, we, we learned from our own experiences of what we like, what we didn't like about it. And we adjust and you'll see there will be adjustments going forward including with season screamings, which is coming up, which is our, our Christmas show mm. that we do. So um, it's, it's a constant evolution. We do constantly reinvent ourselves. We try as hard as we can to never uh, rest on our laurels about anything. And we just, again, we, we know that the bar is set really high 
for what we do. Um, we just tried to like out excite ourselves because we figure if we create something that we're excited about, chances are a couple other people are going to be excited about it too. And so far that's been a perfect uh, compass for us to follow. Um, so, so how exactly did Midsummer Scream come about? Who brought it to the table and yeah. was like, hey, I've got this crazy idea. Let's rent out a giant uh, a convention space and arguably risk a ton of money to oh, throw yeah. it and put it all on the line. How did all of that come yeah. about? Well, there was a rift within Scare LA. And basically, the two people that created Scare LA uh, had a really irreparable falling out. It was we were actually at Transworld. When this, when this all came crashing down, really. And uh, Gary said, you know, he pulled me aside and said, look, you have created something so special for the community. You can't just like walk away from this. You gotta, we'll create some, let's create something bigger and better. Let's just, let's move on, move forward. And, and just, cause the community deserves this. And so uh, it was really then we, we moved forward and from, that point at, at Transworld where we said, okay, well, let's create something. We had about three and a half, four maybe months between, okay, well, let's do something to opening doors, which is fucking crazy. Like, like unless you are an event producer, which David Markland had been, and then by default I became. Why, why so fast, though? Was there a date you guys were trying to hit? Was it just in season? Well, it was that year. Yeah, I mean, we, it was supposed to be that year. Like, we were doing Scare LA every year, and it was a summer thing, and it was already March, and we were at Transworld, and it was like, shit, we got to do something. And so Gary, who owns his own AV company, he's very familiar with the people that run the Long Beach Convention Center. So that was the in there. And we saw that, and it was in, it was, so in the early days, and you can still find it now. If you go back online, you can find our first logo was Midsummer Scream Halloween Festival. Because the idea was let's just do something really cool and really small, have it like maybe outside, have it like a pop up vendor market, and have live bands, have food, music, or whatever, a festival, right? Well, then once we started rolling up our sleeves and getting out, I was like, well, but Universal wants to come and Knotts wants to come and present stuff. And suddenly we had a stage. And then it was like, well, we had this vendor and this vendor we know want to. Suddenly we had lots of vendors. <laughs> and it was suddenly, shit, this is a convention. It's not a festival. So, but the name festival stayed around for a couple of years. And it really took a lot of, like, we had to constantly remind each other. Like, I had to count, David, like, would, would, We'd be launching Midsummer Scream in another year, and suddenly he'd send out graphics to people that said festival on it. I'm like, no, it's not another year of Midsummer Scream Festival. It's a convention. So in the last several years, you know, last couple of years now, it's everything you see, it says Halloween and horror convention. Right. But no, I mean, that just, we didn't come away from Scarol saying, well, we're going to create then the mother of all Halloween conventions. We just wanted to put something on for the community and not walk away from it. And it just kind of, ballooned it came it went on the same trajectory that scarole did but with new leadership in place that just saw well beyond what scarole could have ever been and we just kind of took it to the next level and i mean you can sit all day and talk about well we think it was this maybe or this aspect of it you know sometimes sometimes shit just works right and you're in the right place at the right time you know, who knows if, if now in 2022, 
we said, you know, for 2023, we want to create a brand new Halloween convention or whatever. It's a totally different world now. Right. And you do have these little events like every weekend now popping up somewhere in Southern California. And things are so much more expensive now. You know, it's not a cheap thing that we do. Renting out the entire Long Beach Convention Center is a behemoth of a, of a beast. And that's just on the finance end of things, let alone all the show elements that everybody gets to come in and enjoy. Um, it's something that takes about 18 months to make, make a midsummer show put together. When it comes to vendors, uh, is there some sort of outreach process or do they submit to you guys? Originally it was, but now the outreach comes from people saying, how do we get on the waiting list to be a vendor, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's something that, that, you know, David Markland has fostered an incredible relationship with over 300 vendors that we have come. Like, I don't know, I don't know, 30, let around you know, 300 vendors. Now, there are a lot of conventions that you go to out there that that is, they are void of that, right? And so many people... And I have to be careful when I say this because I don't want to sound like I'm blowing smoke or, or really tooting our own horn. But so many people will come to us and say, dude, there is just something different about Midsummer that you can feel this, this electricity in the air that people are like genuinely happy to be there. Right. And I say, well, it's like a homecoming, especially this year after the pandemic, finally getting to have Midsummer, our fifth anniversary. You know, I even had a banner made that said, you know, welcome home, spooky kids, because it was a homecoming to us. It wasn't just like, okay, we'll cough up your cash, come in and vendors are going to sell you shit. And here's a few, you know, haunts for you to look at. We really came at it with, with everything we had as far as our heart and soul and just really wanting it to be the most amazing comeback that these fans have had, that they've been waiting for. Uh, so many people held on to their tickets from 2020. You know, we told them you can either get a refund or you can hang on to them and we will honor them as soon as Midsummer comes back. So many people hung on to their tickets for two years, three by the time we opened doors. I mean, they held on because they're like, oh no, probably these from my dead hands. They wanted to hold on to their midsummer passes. Well, it's interesting. It's amazing. You can't buy something at all of the vendors, you know, quote yeah. unquote vendors there, all the booths there. Uh, there, there was a God, booth. You can't that, even see them all. Right. <laughs> There's so many. There's yeah. a lot. There's yeah. a lot of walking. There, there was a booth I came across. I think they were selling stuff as well, but the owner of the booth had all of these oddities and each okay. oddity had a different story and each picture had a different story. So Sure, they're trying to sell you something. At the end of his spiel, you're supposed to buy yeah. something, but it's the story that came along with it, and you don't get to see that. You know, you go to Days of the Dead, sure, you get to see Tony Todd, you get to see Nick Castle, but, you know, you've got the Creepsville stands, you've got the, you know, people that are selling independent art. Yeah. What made Midsummer Scream so special to me was the fact that not everything was trying to sell you something. Some things were there specifically to make zero dollars only to entertain you. Sure. That level of thought, that level of care for people um, is something that stands out. And, you know, Hall of Shadows being one of those things as well. That's the biggest. I was going to say that's that. Keep going, but I'm, I will jump on that because that's that's the biggest example of what you're getting at. Well, no, and that's the, that's exactly what I wanted you to jump on yeah. was the Hall of Shadow, something yeah. you literally do not need to pay for. This isn't an extra charge. This yeah. isn't some you know VIP ticket experience. You walk in, you come into this alley. What what was it called this year? Midsummer Estates, right? 
the entry experience was called Midsummer Estates. My favorite part. Yeah. There were yeah. people standing out with bowls of candy. You know, there was the Friday the or uh, the the Nightmare on Elm Street yeah. house. I think they had the Halloween three house, a Silver Shamrock house was somewhere. There was like there. a Silver Shamrock mashup with 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 other things. The best. And, yeah, I loved yeah. it. So when it comes to thinking of Midsummer Scream and putting all this together, was that in the original plans? Was to make a Hall of Shadows where people could walk through? Yeah. Uh, year three of Scarlet, we had a room that had haunts. And so we knew that going forward, creating Midsummer Scream, we wanted to embiggen on that idea, right? So um, I named it the Hall of Shadows, and we invited home haunters to do this. And you are right in that it brings... It, it 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 doesn't bring any it, it brings sales because people buy tickets now because they want to see the Hall of Shadows. Mm. That said, it costs a shit ton for us to put together the Hall of Shadows, and it costs the haunters a shit ton of their time and their own money and their own resources to come be part of Hall of Shadows. Uh, but what's great about the Hall of Shadows is it is a blank canvas every year that we have the, 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 the great honor of hosting some of the best haunters in Southern California and a lot of them young haunters to come create. Cause I, I do believe that these are all works of art. It's a temporary art installation. It's there for a weekend and it's gone forever. Right. Thank God we got YouTube because you can go back and see the hall of shadows. But I mean, it, it's, if you want to see it, you got to come and see it because 48 hours later, it's just a memory, right? Mm -hmm. So you have these people come that in many cases, they create these amazing yard displays or whatever that are seen maybe by a thousand, maybe 1500 people in a season. Whereas you have something that you're suddenly able to build in the hall of shadows where at any given time, there are thousands of guests in the hall of shadows. So it really gives younger haunters and, and older haunters a chance to put their stuff on display in a, a, a temporary art gallery. Really, it's a Halloween art gallery uh, that's just this living, breathing, amazing thing. And I think that that is something that makes Midsummer Stream that, that totally separates us from other conventions. Uh, yeah, of course, there are there are events that have haunters come out now and create displays and that type of thing. Different context. But like it's just... It's again, it's apples and oranges because nobody, nobody does it as big as we do, and nobody puts the effort into it uh, that we do. It's right. built into our business plan. And when we're budgeting, you know, Midsummer Scream twenty twenty three, there is X amount of money that is, and I'm not the guy to talk finances because number one, <sighs> boring, and number two, it's just not my thing. I'm, I would run us into the ground in in a month's time because I just want big best everything right i mm -hmm. no concept of budget usually so uh but it is something that we absolutely have to set aside and say okay we know that the hollow shadows is going to cost in the ballpark of this and this and so we have to work within those confines um but no conventions are very expensive to put on and believe me post post pandemic they're even more expensive to put on right so uh no but the, so hollow shadows uh, just Recapping what I said, uh, it, it is an honor for us to be able to create something so unique to conventions uh, that, I mean, there are some people that come 
just to see the Hall of Shadows and will buy a VIP ticket for the weekend. And they stay virtually in the Hall of Shadows the whole time. Right. Going through the haunts over and over, hanging out, taking pictures, watching the Decayed Brigade slider shows. I mean, there are some people that are there for the weekend that never see the light of day. They don't go to the panels. They don't go to the show floor. And we purposely design the scope and scale of Midsummer Scream so that you can't possibly see everything. Right. We, we run so much programming all at once, whether it's our major panel presentations on the main stage, things on the second stage, which is our performance stage, to independent small little classrooms. We, we just counter-program everything that people, in a fun way, hopefully, usually, uh, are pulling their hair out, going, oh, my God, I need to be... I need to rip myself in two because I can't be in both places at once. And it drives our media, our, our people that are covering for media, our media partners are like, damn you, because they can't possibly cover everything that they want to at Midsummer. We do that by design because as, as an organization that puts on a show for people, you never want to have a three-day convention where people walk away Saturday afternoon saying, well, we don't really need to come Sunday because we've already seen everything. You're dead in the water the minute you've hit that, you know? So, no, we, we want people to walk away going, oh, my God, that was so good, but there was so much that I wanted to see. And then they come back next year to see maybe that thing or that type of thing that they didn't get to see right. before. So it's all about building that into the, the, the business plan. Well, and that's what's brilliant about it, too, yeah. is, you know, what brings back people to Halloween Horror Nights is, oh, this year it's not Texas Chainsaw Massacre, sure. it's The Exorcist. Yeah. So it's with Midsummer Scream, the Hall of Shadows is this theme, and then it's that theme. So yeah. it does keep people coming yeah. back. What's interesting about it, though, is that it's not just haunted houses. I mean, you've, you you had, um, I always get the name wrong, wrong, Quail Run? Quail Run Carnival. Quail Run Carnival. Yeah. That was one of the coolest setups I've ever seen. Uh, just because when I talked to the guy at the front, um, I, I just imagine that this was something that was up for sale. It was something that a, a major corporation had thrown together to promote something that they were doing. And the guy at the front, I, I remember asking him, like, hey, wh what do you guys do? Where is this located? Yeah. He goes, dude, I, I, I build this in my garage. I yeah. set it up at my house. Yeah. Uh, I go, well, how much do you charge? Nothing. We just have kids come by and play games to, you know, trick or treat. Yeah. It's just one of those things where, you know, you guys aren't just giving something to the fans to go experience. You guys are giving a platform to people who don't get this kind of attention oh, sure. anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. That was Corey. That's Corey Lawrence. And he's a good friend of mine for years and years. Also works in themed entertainment and the entertainment industry. He's a production designer and, and art director on currently he's, he's been the art director for a long time on the Goldbergs TV show. And so, like I said earlier, it's these creative people in Hollywood that eventually they come home and this spills over into what they do for Halloween. Right. So Corey has all this know-how and all this energy and all these ideas and he brings it home and is like, I'm going to create an old-timey carnival for just the kids in the neighborhood. And he showed me pictures. He goes, oh, I just did this for, for some kids you know, in the neighborhood. I was like... Dude, that has to be in the Hall of Shadows next year. And so that how that's how that happens. So this happened last year. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like the Hall of Shadows stuff is. So, like, right now, um, my girlfriend and I, we're traveling around and we're seeing all the home haunts and all these things. This year, that plants the seed in my mind. And I'm like, okay, I want that in the Hall of Shadows next year. 
So we're already well on our way with, with Midsummer 23. Right. I mean, that's, we're already, we already know what the theme of hollow shadows is going to be. We already know what some of the big panels are going to be. This is a long way out that we see. I mean, once the show opens, that's old news, man. We're all like when Midsummer opened this year. Yeah. We had a responsibility to, to make sure that it was executed the best as it could be. But our attention and focus was already on the horizon for Midsummer 23. Right. And for season screamings, you know, which is coming up now, but right. uh, no, it's, it's always on the horizon. Always. It, it does take about 18 months, sometimes longer. I wanted to do the monster kids panel that we finally had this year at Midsummer. I wanted to do that before the pandemic. And it's the most legendary panel, I think, it's great. That, that's ever been done. It was wonderful. Before. It was wonderful. Because you look at Boris Karloff. Yeah. You look at Bella Lugosi, Vincent Price. They're kind of like, you know, they were dead long before I was born, I think. Yeah. I mean, me I don't too. Know, when, did, when, when was the last me too. one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Me too. Yeah. So, um, you know, these, they're kind of like make-believe. Yeah. They're, they're superheroes. They're bigger than life. Yeah. And, yeah. and to see... Um, you know, the descendants on stage yeah. with somebody as iconic as the guitarist of fucking Metallica yeah, yeah. moderating the whole thing. Just just such an incredible... I, I unfortunately missed it, but I did watch the videos on YouTube. Sure, there's a million videos, I'm sure, yeah. on YouTube. Did you get to know any of them, like, when they were in? Like, who, who was the coolest out of them all? So I didn't know any of the monster... I call them the monster families. I didn't know any of the monster families. And uh, I just... Recap for people that don't know, the original Monster Kids, the concept was we're going to have the, the, the children and great-grandchildren or whatever of, of these iconic uh, film legends like Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and all that, um, the Cheneys, um, come together for the first time ever. Like Even like the Motion Picture Academy hasn't done this. Brought them all together on stage to share their collective memories of realizing, oh, dad or grandpa is this like huge icon, you know, type of thing that had never been done before. And, you know, um, the original, the story is here and it's true. The original idea that I had for moderator, because a moderator is very important for this kind of thing. If you have the wrong moderator, you can have the best panel in the world and it just fucks it all up. Cause it just, it throws off the juju. Right. Right. So my original plan was to have these kids, kids on stage um, and Gilbert Gottfried be the moderator because Gilbert was just a huge monster kid himself. I mean, he, he forward and backward, like the back of his hand knew everything about these families. He was friends with all these families, had them on his own podcast, you know? So Gilbert was the one and I reached out to Gilbert and he and his wife, Dara, they, they contacted me right back and said, how excited and, and flattered that Gilbert was that we would reach out, but that they couldn't because they were going to be traveling at that time. And then literally just a couple weeks later, Gilbert passed away. Damn. And so it was like a gut punch, but then it was also a hindsight that, oh, they probably knew he was pretty sick at that point and just said, well, we're going to be traveling. Right. Um, so it then became Kirk Hammett and, and David Markland is the one that kept saying he was, he was on my shoulder the whole time saying, look, this is your dealio, but I, I, and I know you want Gilbert, but if Gilbert doesn't work out, cause I was thinking, you know, maybe John Landis, maybe, you know, so I didn't know I, I had names in my mind, you know, Leonard Malton, maybe. I was just going to ask you, uh, like, yeah, were there any backup? Plans? Yeah, that was the backup plan. And, and he kept saying, Kirk Hammett, Kirk Hammett. 
And I said, okay, but why? Like, why? I, like, bridge this gap for me. Like, why would, number one, why would he want to do Midsummer Scream? And number two, why would we want him to do Midsummer? He goes, dude, he's a huge horror collector. And by the way, he's been on Gilbert's podcast. You should listen. I was like, shit, okay. So I listened, and like five minutes in, I was like, oh, this is perfect. This is, he's great. But then you go about the journey of how the hell do you reach out to Kirk Hammett and get him to come do your convention? You know? Uh, so what happened was at the same time, I'm sending out all these cold emails, like cold calling to Sarah Karloff, to Ron Chaney, to Lynn Lagosi Sparks. I'm sending out these emails to their info at, you know, address saying, Hi, we do a Halloween convention. We'd really like you to come. You know, what do you say? And unless you've been at Midsummer, people go, oh, that's cute. You know, when you say you have the world's largest Halloween, you're like, that's nice, hon. And then they come and they're like, oh, shit. And you're like, well, that's what I meant by the world's largest, you know. Um, they didn't know me. And like literally right away, the first person that reached back was Sarah Karloff. And I just thought, because she's older and I don't know her, and I, I, I thought maybe she might be the hardest one to get to respond. She responded right away. And she like instantly like started reaching out and nudging everybody else. Hey, you better contact Rick back. We want to do this. This sounds like a great idea. And she was, she's a force of nature. She is just unbelievable. And we actually, Elianova and I went to her house and we sat with her and she said, well, who do you want? Because we talked about Gilbert Gottfried dying and she she loved Gilbert. She thought that he was a wonderful person. And uh, she said, well, who else? Who else are you thinking of? And I said, well, uh, we're trying to reach out to Kirk Hammett. She goes, oh, Kirk will do it. Kirk, that That's great. And I'm like, and it turns out that like they have a great friendship that goes back a long time. And I'm thinking, oh, super collector. Of course she knows Kirk Hammett. Of course all these families know Kirk Hammett, and they did. And they said, oh, yeah, let's please. Let's. And Sarah goes, oh, I'll, I'll have him reach out. And literally 24 hours later, there's email in my inbox from his assistant saying, oh, we're very interested. Let's talk. we got to meet for lunch and talk about this. It's like, so Sarah was the one that just kind of whipped all this into shape. And flash forward now, Sarah's become like family. It's just like, whose life is this? This is like, what a blessing and how crazy that is, right? Mm. Uh, you know, hanging out, having a beer with, with Ron Chaney. What life is this? You know, and it's a blessed life is, yeah. is what it is. And what did uh, they all have in common? You know, I mean, being the children of, you know, they, they just, that's it. Like being the children or grandchildren of, you know, um, in putting this together, you know, Lynn said to me very early on, Lynn Lagosi Sparks, she said very early on, I'm different from these others in that I never met my grandfather. She, her father, who is Bela Jr., and we think we're going to have him at Season Screamings, folks. So uh, she never met grandpa. And she goes, so I'm delighted to be part of this, but I don't have anything to bring to the conversation because I didn't have a relationship. Whereas these guys knew at their dad or grandfather or great, you know, whatever. And I said, Lynn, what you have is a very unique story in that 
even though you didn't know grandpa, like in my world, and we've talked about him today here, the most important for me person for me in the world growing up was my grandfather. He was my father figure. He was my best friend, and he was my grandpa. He was my he was my my spine. I mean, he was my my foundation. Nobody knows who my grandfather was. Nobody cares who my grandfather was. He's all in here now, right? Uh, I said to Lynn, "You, however, can go to Japan. You can go to London. You can walk down the street, and you're going to pass somebody wearing a shirt." With your grandfather on it. Yeah, or with a fucking like, tattoo. Or on with arm. a tattoo, right? I said, not knowing your grandfather, but being anywhere in the world where you are surrounded by pictures and imagery of your grandfather, that's a lot. That's gotta be a lot, yeah, you know, to take in. And how unique. And that's what you bring to the table with the conversation. And she got it. She understood. And, and she said, well, yeah, and, and it is a lot. And, and yeah. And so, no, having them together was great. But then the great residual, the residual payment from that was that these people have become friends, especially Sarah, has become very important in, in our lives. And, you know, my grandparents are, are all gone now. And, and, you know, I was very close to my, my grandmother. And, and I just... I feel a lot of that kinship with Sarah because of this idea a few years ago to bring these monster kids together for Midsummer Scream. Our lives now are just so much more rich and so much better on the back end that people don't even, you know, will never even see on stage for it, that that is just, uh, God, you, you can't even put a price on that kind of takeaway. Right. And in, 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 in ways similar to that, you know, getting, getting to know haunters that come in and, and do our, our hall of shadows, you know, getting to know them and then showing up and seeing them at Halloween. It's like seeing, you know, family, they're, they're good friends. They, they give us hugs. They, they, they show us around, they show us their haunts. They're very excited that we're there. And, uh, no. So like the residual is just being further entrenched in the community and seeing how literally excited everybody is to be part of Midsummer every year or season screamings or, or just to hang out and talk and take pictures. And just, just the camaraderie right. is, is just so deep and so rich and so real that it, it honestly doesn't feel like a job. I very rarely, very rarely do I feel like I'm, I'm working. That sense of community is very strong, and I, I honestly appreciate the fact that you guys spend so much time and money putting these things together. I mean, I remember learning that you guys didn't charge home haunters to set up at the Hall of Shadows. It was we do not. shocking to me. We do not. We, uh, we, we do not, and we provide parking for them. We, we provide all their electrical power. Just the electrical power alone to run Hall of Shadows is is more in a weekend than some people make working in a year. Right. I mean, the scale of this thing is 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 so mind blowing. But we do it because we realize that without those haunters being excited about being there and coming to do this stuff, we don't have a hall of shadows. Right. Those haunters are the, their number. They're the number one priority is keeping them happy, giving them a fantastic platform to do their thing to helping them with guidance, with meeting the milestone preparation leading up to this, 
to promoting them, and then just to backing the hell off and letting them do their thing. Right. And they do their thing. And I, this Hall of Shadows that we had this year was the best thing that we've ever had there. I mean, it was it was the size of, of the haunts alone and just the scale of everything just was so just bitching. It just gets it gets better every year, and it just blows my mind. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that in 23, I'm going to be like, oh, my God, this is the best Hollow Shadows we've ever It's because everything just gets better every right. year. And these guys and gals that come out, their, their skill sets get better and stronger every year. And, um, no, I, I'm very excited about that because just the sky's the limit on that, really. Well, the most important part is that it's in the middle of summer. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's October yeah. still a little bit of ways away. Yeah. You can kind of feed that fascination. By design. It's yeah. always been by design. Originally, what fed that, because people say, oh, how do you have a Halloween show in summer? Well, the way that we set Scare LA up, it was because it was during the summer that the theme park started announcing their haunts and their events and their mazes. And so by design, by very specific design, that's when we decided we were going to hold Scare LA so that Universal and Knotts could come to our stage and make these announcements. Now, that's changed over the years. Like, Universal starts announcing some of their shit, like, in February sometimes, right? Uh, but for the most part, Halloween now starts so early here in, well, everywhere now. I mean, earlier in Florida with Walt Disney World than it does even here with Universal. But, I mean, it starts really in the beginning of September. If we go and we're in July, you only only have a few weeks there, and then suddenly it's Halloween. So, we are very prideful in the fact that we, we call ourselves, we are the gateway to Halloween. We're, we're the right. kickoff of the Halloween yeah. season in Southern California. And then you do season screamings as well. And now we're doing season screamings, which is our Christmas Halloween horror mashup event. And that is every December now. We're going to do that at the Pasadena Convention Center. Um, looks like, feels like, smells like midsummer, but it is, it's, it's, it's fun size compared to what we do in Long Beach. It's about one-fifth the size of what we do in Long Beach. Literally everything that we do in Pasadena could fit in the Hall of Shadows in Long Beach. There's your size difference. But uh, so season screamings, we have a large stage, which is going to seat upward of a thousand people. So we do have a main stage. Uh, we will have a second stage that's going to be used for maybe screenings or, or performances or whatever. We're still, we're still locking in and we're still announcing, you know, our programming for season screamings. Um, we have a hall of Yuletide spirits. So no Which longer Hall of Shadows. Is, well, so it's got to be something different, right? Because yeah, yeah. it's not the Hall of Shadows. But I very purposely called it the Hall of because it's got to keep that mm -hmm. branding and that feel. Because this is Midsummer Scream Presents Season Screamings, right? So we knew there's got to be a Hall of in this thing. And it's it's smaller, but it's it's the haunts and the displays with a spooky holiday twist right. to it, you know? And we have live entertainment, our Force of Nature Productions. They provide us every year with Christmas carolers that have diabolical lyrics that they've created for this Christmas carols. And it's just it's a lot of fun. So what are actions that the listeners could take directly after this episode to start cultivating or growing the horror Halloween community in their own cities? Wow. I think just, uh, you know get active, introduce yourselves. I mean, if you go up to see someone's yard display, 
you know, don't just get out of your car and look at it and jump back in your car and drive away. If they're out there on the porch or out there in the yard, making sure that you're not there to steal their shit, thank them. Introduce yourself. Say, oh, man, this is fantastic. What do you do for a living? Get to know each other. But it all starts with camaraderie, right? It's, it all starts with networking, 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 with, with like-minded fans, like-minded uh, haunters. Uh, you know, if you're a haunter yourself, Say to your say to your neighbors across town that have a home haunt, hey, we should go grab a drink and, and talk about this. That's how it starts, right? Mm. Or, oh man, you know, I love the way that you did your crank ghost. I I want you come see my peppers ghost. See what you think about this. That's that's the genesis. That creates the big bang, right? That's right. getting people to just talk, to communicate. Communication is key. Just communicate. And then suddenly, oh, well, I have these other friends that They've been wanting to do a home haunt, but they don't know how. Oh, well, let's go show them how. Suddenly there's a new home haunt that year. That's how it grows. So if if you want to start fostering your community communication, that goes a long way, man. Something as simple as going up to somebody and letting them know, hey, I loved what you did, might spark enough motivation and drive in that person to be like, I want to take this bigger. That one person telling me that they loved this yep. has now sparked, you know, a hundred percent, a John Cook or a John yep. Murdy, a hundred percent. Get your ass out and, and and see home haunts in your neighborhood. Drive to a neighboring city, drive across counties. I mean, whatever whatever it takes. Get out and see these things and appreciate them and live in the moment. And when you get the chance, thank the creators. That's just that that's that's it. That's that's really there. That's all there is to it. Right. Well, Rick, I want to thank you for coming into the crypt today. Mm, yeah, I also want to thank you for putting yeah. on such an amazing show for people of the community year around. Yeah. I think the fact that it's not in October is what makes it so special. And I hope people could follow suit. I hope people could channel their inner freak into something creative, if not just contributing to uh, you know, their own community. I think there's large benefits inside of that. Uh, so, yeah. guys, let us know where you're from. Do you have a community in your city? If you do, keep the spirit alive. If you don't, Maybe we could get Rick West to take Midsummer Scream on the road. Uh, make sure to like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram at Talks from the Crypt. You can support Rick and Midsummer Scream by finding them on Instagram at Rick West 999 or at Midsummer Scream. Thank you all for coming into the Crypt today and stay creepy, my friends. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. Anytime, man. man. Peace. Amazing. <laughs>